Hey listeners, thank you for joining me for episode 18 of Creme de la Crime podcast. This week we're headed to Louisiana, and according to worldpopulationreview.com, the state of Louisiana has 266 unsolved disappearances. It's important to keep in mind that this is based off of actual known reported cases. It is possible the real number is higher than that. So grab your wine and let's dive in to a little Louisiana true crime. The first story I want to share with you is about a little girl by the name of Avery Grace Evans. And Avery's story is so heartbreaking because nothing about what happened to her really makes sense or had any reasoning behind it at all. Avery Evans was born on December 15, 1978 to parents Joanne and Rick. I read in an old news article that she lived in the family home with her parents, sister, and stepsister on Shady Lane in Natchitoches, Louisiana. I looked up a little bit about this town, and the town of Natchitoches is famous for its meat pies and for being the filming location for the famous movie Steel Magnolia. Now, this case is frustrating because it's one of those cold cases that you can find a ton of articles about the man that confessed to killing Avery, but there's barely any information about Avery herself. I had to go through countless old newspaper clippings and the Facebook page the family made to piece the story together. When family and friends described Avery, they said she was an active and loved little girl. She was a straight-A student and a talented violinist in the orchestra at her school. Avery was a daughter, granddaughter, sister, niece, and friend. Family members also stated that no matter what Avery decided she wanted to do, she would go all in and put her mind to making it happen. She was full of spirit, energy, and wrote often in her diary of her dreams for the future. Her aunt Erin was quoted saying, She was special. She had a little something different. She would have done wonderful things, and we would have loved to have watched her grow up and accomplish things. Avery touched the lives of everyone she met, and the community she disappeared from still talks about her to this day. On November 5, 1990, just a little over a month before Avery's 12th birthday, Avery went out on her bike to go door-to-door and sell candy bars for a fundraiser to raise money for the orchestra. A lot of sources state she was selling Girl Scout cookies, but I found out that was not the case, and it was chocolate bars specifically. This was something Avery had done more than once. Please keep in mind, this is the year 1990, so this was not an uncommon thing for children to do in their local neighborhoods. It was said Avery went door-to-door throughout the day and then later rode her bike to a friend's house and spent some time there. She told her friend she needed to deliver a few more candy bars and was going home immediately after she finished. Avery was last seen on her bike near Stephen Street around 4.30 p.m., and this was the last time anyone would ever see her. I'm not sure exactly where her friend's house was located, but there was a man named Philip DeSalle that lived on Henry Avenue with his wife, Dottie. 
I had to go really deep through news articles to even find out that Philip was married when this happened. And there's only one article in existence that mentioned Dottie. I decided not to try to find out where she is now because I'm sure this was one of the worst times in her life. When someone makes it a big point to remain out of the media and public eye, they usually just want to forget it ever happened, and it's only fair for me as a podcaster to respect that. I did GPS search Henry Avenue where they lived to Shady Lane where Avery's family lived, and it's only 0.4 miles away. Henry Avenue is the main road Avery would have had to take to get to the road that connects to the street her family home was located on. Philip was 41 years old at this time and was known as an active community and church member. Everyone in the neighborhood knew him and said he was always willing to help out anyone that needed it. It always seems to be this way, right? It's always the nicest guy in the neighborhood. It was said that Avery had known Philip for a while. She told her friends and sisters that he was a really nice man and always bought a lot of candy from her. There was also a statement made that she had told her stepsister at one point that Philip had asked her for her home address and telephone number. Avery stopped at Philip's house. It's important to note that the account of events that took place all came directly from Philip's confession to police. So we pretty much just have to take his word for it because there was no evidence found in his home. But before we go to Philip's confession, I want to share the events that happened leading up to him being discovered as a suspect. As it grew darker and Avery never came home, her parents reported her missing at 7.28 p.m. after they were unable to locate her. The bike she had been riding was a multicolored white, pink, and purple bike and it was also missing. There's a gap in the timeline of events that's hard to fill because most of the coverage of Avery's disappearance came to light when Philip had already been caught. We do know the FBI was quickly called in and immediately began speaking to family members and conducting a search of their own. I read they actually questioned her family very extensively, even to the point of upsetting them a little because they thought the extensive procedures made it look like they were involved. They also asked all of her family to submit to polygraphs and handwriting samples, which the family thought was really strange. No one would explain to them why the handwriting samples were needed, but they all complied and were all ruled out as suspects. Investigators searched the family home extensively, but didn't find much. The only thing they reportedly took was a book that contained all the names and phone calls her parents had received since Avery disappeared. Her parents went through her diary and stated they knew she had not run away because she had written extensively in her diary about her goals and plans for the future. There were no circumstances in Avery's life to point to her running away from her family. A couple weeks after Avery disappeared, police received an anonymous letter in the mail that confessed to strangling Avery. The note was handwritten and stated that the person had disposed of her body in a trash bin and put her bike in Sibley Lake. This person went on to apologize and also described the clothing and jewelry Avery had been wearing when she disappeared. So this was ultimately why police were trying to get handwriting samples from all the people they spoke to because they were hoping to find a match to this anonymous letter. 
I've never been able to find a picture of this letter the police received, so I don't think it was ever released to the public. One news story did state that the anonymous letter claimed all the evidence went up in ashes to heaven and that Avery was with God. Even though we know about this letter now, at the time, the family and community had no clue police had received this letter. They were actually very much kept in the dark, and I would assume it was to protect the integrity of the investigation. Philip had actually been a suspect the police had considered and spoken to, but they had no evidence to directly connect him to Avery. The letter the police had anonymously received had been sent from Minnie, Louisiana, and after some time, police were able to trace this letter back to Philip. Because of this, Philip typed out a letter and attempted to take his own life by cutting his wrists the day before they planned to arrest him. I found out the cuts he made in his arms were apparently so deep that he had to have emergency surgery to save his life and reconstruct them. But he did survive. The FBI announced Philip had been arrested for suspicion of kidnapping and suspected death and that they were beginning a search of a landfill to look for Avery. The letter Philip had left was his confession and suicide letter wrapped into one. And what's crazy is police did actually release this letter to a local newspaper. I'll share a picture of the letter on my Instagram, but I want to read what this letter said word for word. This letter was addressed to Lynn, and Lynn was a special agent with the FBI working the case at the time. So the letter says, Lynn, I know this is a tragic end to a sad story, but I knew a long time ago it would end this way. I really can't explain what happened because I don't understand it myself. It shocked me so much that I had almost blocked it completely out of my mind. It wasn't the fear of facing the judge, going to prison, or what the community thought, so much as the pain of hurting Dottie and losing her forever that I did not admit to my crime. But in reality, I would lose any way that I went. I just took the chicken's way out. I ask two favors of you, please. Keep as much of this out of the news as possible to help protect Dottie. Randy Williams, a city policeman, lives next door. Ask him to keep an eye on her. And second, you're a good talker. Please come talk to Dottie and try to ease her mind some. Thanks. I did not lie when I said I didn't know where Avery was now, but I do know where she was last. In a dumpster at the public boat launch at Oak Grove Road across the street from the store. She was put in a large plastic bag tied at the top with a nylon cord. Sorry to make life so difficult for you. Signed, Philip. He then hand wrote right below, Thanks for giving me the choice. It took a while for Philip to heal from his suicide attempt, but he did eventually give the police a full written confession about the murder of Avery. He told investigators he had dumped Avery's bike in Sibley Lake and had put her body in a dumpster close by. He also stated he had burned all the evidence and disposed of the jewelry she had been wearing as well. After a large search of Sibley Lake was conducted, they were able to locate Avery's bike where he said it would be. At this time in 1990, 
the city transported its garbage to a landfill located about 70 miles away in DeSoto Parish, Louisiana. I read that the FBI and local law enforcement spent weeks deeply combing through this landfill, but found no sign of Avery's body. Ultimately, without her body, the district attorney's office had to make a plea agreement with Philip. Instead of first-degree murder, which was the original charge when he was arrested, he would now be charged with aggravated kidnapping and manslaughter with the agreement of his written confession. In his confession, he stated he convinced Avery to come inside to the kitchen so he could buy candy from her. When she walked into the kitchen, he said he hit her over the head and then strangled her to death. He never admitted to sexually assaulting her or anything along those lines. And since she has never been found, this has never even been mentioned. So just from the information we have from him, he had no real reason for killing Avery. When asked during the hearing why he killed her, he simply responded, quote, I was having a bad day and just snapped, end quote. After the hearing was over, Aaron was quoted saying, he is an evil man. He never showed any remorse or regret, end quote. Philip pleaded guilty and received the maximum sentence for manslaughter, which was 40 years, and another 10 years for aggravated kidnapping. So he received a total of 50 years, but the bullshit about this was that they were to be served concurrently, meaning at the same time, So he really only got 40 years with the eligibility for parole after only 17 years for killing a child. I read a small side note that was made on this case and it said that the case was later reopened at some point and authorities dug up the driveway of the home where Philip and Dottie had lived. They wanted to see if Philip had possibly hidden Avery's body there, but they ended up finding nothing. Philip became eligible for parole in 2007. Avery's aunt and other family members created an online petition and rallied with the public. When they presented this petition to the board, they denied Philip's parole request. Years went by and an article released on January 15, 2015, stated Philip's early parole had been approved and he would walk free on Thursday, January 22, 2015. At this time, he had only served 24 years of his 50-year sentence. This early release happened because the law at the time he was sentenced allowed it. When Philip was found guilty, the law stated that qualifying offenders had the ability to reduce their sentences by earning what they call good time credits. Inmates earn these credits in exchange for good behavior and participating in self-improvement programs while in prison. This law was actually changed in 1997, now requiring violent offenders to serve a minimum of 85% of their sentences before they can be eligible for release. Unfortunately, because Philip was sentenced under the previous law, the newer law didn't apply to his case. Avery's aunt was quoted saying, At the time, we thought he would be in his 80s or 90s when he got out. You get some sense of peace with that. End quote. Philip was only 65 years old when he was released in 2015. 
Avery's aunt had registered as a victim with the Louisiana Department of Corrections, so she received an alert and an updated picture of Philip when he was approved for release. His release infuriated Avery's family, and for good reason. When Aaron alerted the rest of the family, they started a Facebook page called Justice for Avery to alert the public. They continuously posted updates about Philip's move to Alexandria, including his new address and an updated picture. I wanted to share a couple posts that the family shared on Facebook after Philip was released from prison. The first one said, quote, Another day has dawned, and our Avery is still gone, and now her killer walks free. The cold gray rain outside matches our grief. Wade Correctional has confirmed that he was released and has left the prison. We wait now for confirmation of where he will be living. He has 48 hours to report to a probation and parole office. The end of the 48 hours falls on Saturday, and that means it could be Monday before he reports. Four days of no supervision. Please continue to share this information and his photo with urgency. Hold your children a little tighter. The world just got a little colder. End quote. The second statement I want to share is as follows. Quote, It was our sincere hope that DeSalle would never gain his freedom. The anxiety and terror that this news has touched off has shaken us as a family and has worsened the pain that we already endure daily. We feel, as Avery would feel, that we must spread the alarm that a child killer is about to be in our midst. He has stated his intention to register with the probation and parole of Ville Platte, Louisiana. We feel DeSalle will kill again given the opportunity. He watched from his kitchen window for 12 agonizing weeks as we searched for Avery. His concealment of evidence and the refusal to reveal the true location of Avery's body shows that this was not a murder of passion, but a murder of calculation and premeditation, the most dangerous type of murder, the type that is repeated. He is an evil predator, and we owe a debt of protection to the children and families of Ville Platte. Philip DeSell has already devastated one community, changing Natchitoches forever by taking Avery's life and with it the security and innocence of this small town. Please help stop this from happening again to another community. End quote. The news of his arrival spread quickly, as well as his address on social media. The news unsettled area residents which led to a statement being made by police stating that they had a team working on keeping an eye on Philip's case. They stated, quote, We're going to know more about Mr. DeSell than Mr. DeSell knows about Mr. DeSell, end quote. While on parole, Philip was required to wear a GPS monitor, adhere to a curfew of 6 p.m. daily, and register with the sheriff's office because the state classifies him as a child predator. He would also be required to receive permission any time he left his home or office for any form of travel. This set of rules was to remain in place throughout his entire parole, which isn't scheduled to end until the year 2040. When you're released from prison, you're required to register within 48 hours. Philip was released on a Thursday and had registered by Friday morning. He was in the process of sending notices to his neighbors about his arrival, which was another requirement of his parole. 
when he was arrested on a parole violation because his living plans were no longer approved. This is very strange, and I'm not really sure what happened here. Because documents stated his living arrangements and address had previously been approved. I found out the address that was originally approved was within one mile of four schools, two elementary schools, and two middle schools. It was also located close to the Alexandria Zoo and the Alexandria City Park. It never said this was specifically why he was arrested, but if it was, I'm wondering how the parole board missed this when approving his permanent residence. Even though the specific reasoning behind his rearrest is unknown, officials stated Philip would remain in jail until he had another approved living plan. It would be completely up to him to make these arrangements and then have them approved by parole officials. I haven't been able to find anything stating whether Philip is still in prison or not, but I feel like if he would have been released again, the family definitely would have been posting about it. The address available to the public for Philip is still the same one that was posted when he was originally released on parole, so it's never been updated. And I actually pulled up this address and it's now a restaurant. Because of this, I believe Philip is still in prison because it's really not easy for offenders to find an approved space to live without the help of family or friends. And I don't think Philip really has anyone that could or would help him at this point. Officials advised the community to contact authorities if they saw anything they thought was suspicious or had any concerns, stating, quote, We take their comments seriously and will investigate each and every one on Mr. DeSalle as well as anyone under probation and parole, end quote. Heather Matlock with the Garden District Neighborhood Foundation said she hopes this news will serve as a reminder for residents to keep an eye on their children and that the group will continue to strive to make the neighborhoods a safer place to live. After Avery's murder, the Natchitoches Parish School Board changed its school fundraising rules, completely stopping door-to-door sales. They stated this did help for a little while, but ultimately didn't last very long. A nationwide movement towards the same thing was also attempted four years later, but ended up failing as well. Avery's Aunt Erin said that her two sisters, quote, never really recovered from her death. They were very close, end quote. I want to end with two powerful statements made by her family. The first is, quote, We just want to honor Avery's memory and let people know not to forget and that you really have to protect your children. Sometimes the threat is right around the corner and you don't realize it, end quote. And the last quote is as follows. The loss of Avery has changed the course of our lives forever. Never seeing her precious and beautiful face again is almost more than we can bear. Every happy memory is shadowed with the grief of Avery's murder. A bright light has been extinguished and it is our job to make sure darkness does not prevail. End quote. Avery Evans was last seen leaving her friend's home on her bike in Natchitoches, Louisiana on November 5, 1990, when she was 11 years old. She is a Caucasian female with brown hair and brown eyes. At the time of her disappearance, she was 5 foot and weighed around 101 pounds. She was last seen wearing a black sweater, 
a blue denim vest, and black jeans. Some accounts spell Avery's name with a Y at the end, and her case is classified as a non-family abduction. If you have any information regarding the disappearance of Avery Evans, please contact the Natchitoches Police Department at 318-352-8101. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The second case I want to share with you today is about a woman by the name of Daphne Jones. And this story is a little shorter and there's not as much information, but anytime I come across a young woman who disappears that's carrying a baby, and there's barely any information about Daphne, and it just breaks my heart for her family, so I want to share her story with you, so hopefully we can keep putting her name out there and find some answers for her family. Daphne Jones was born on July 16, 1976. It was hard to find background about Daphne's life, but I did find out that her mom's name was Dr. Marla Oakes. At the time of her disappearance, Daphne was 22 years old and a student at the University of New Orleans on a jazz scholarship. She spoke multiple languages and was also studying multiple languages in school. Her dream was to eventually become a teacher or work in the international relations field. Daphne had been living in the dorms on campus, but had recently moved off campus into an apartment with her boyfriend shortly after finding out she was pregnant. She was a hostess part-time at Brennan's Restaurant at this time, and Daphne's mom offered to allow Daphne to move back home to Maryland so that she could help her throughout her pregnancy and as a first-time mom. She decided to take Marla up on this offer and was planning to leave school her job, and fly back home on January 9th. It was known that Daphne was two months pregnant at this time and being pressured by the father to terminate her pregnancy. She told her family she had no intentions of ending her pregnancy and was planning to tell her boyfriend she was leaving and returning home. Her aunt, Helena Smith, told News One, quote, she refused to have an abortion. She told her mother, and her mother told Daphne to come home so that she could take care of her, end quote. Her boyfriend's name has never been released to the public, so there is absolutely no information available about him. Daphne's grandmother, Ethel Clark, dropped her off between 1.50 p.m. and 2.30 p.m. on January 3, 1999. Daphne was scheduled to work at 3 p.m. that day at Brennan's Restaurant. This was the last time anyone ever saw Daphne. Her grandmother later made a statement saying, quote, I didn't have a good feeling about leaving her at that dark apartment, end quote. Helena also stated that their grandmother had an eerie feeling when Daphne got out of the car and that, quote, 
Something told her not to leave, but she pulled off, end quote. Daphne never showed up for her 3 p.m. work shift. Even though Ethel was the last person to physically see Daphne, she was not the last person in the family to speak to her. At some point after 3 p.m. when Daphne was supposed to already be at work, she called her cousin and this relative said she seemed very upset but never talked about what was bothering her. This was the last communication Daphne ever had with her family. After she didn't show up for work and her family couldn't get in touch with her, the family reached out to her landlord and this person allowed them access to where she lived. When Helena walked in, she found a strange scene. Quote, when I went in, she had warmed up some food, the television was on, the iron was on, and it seemed like she left in a hurry. End quote. It was also noted that Daphne's backpack and her identification were there and the heat was on in the apartment. Unfortunately, that's all the information available in Daphne's case. I couldn't find a single article that stated the police even looked for this girl. The only advocacy I could find on her behalf were major organizations and her own family members. Daphne's mother became a tireless advocate for her daughter. She appeared on the Dr. Phil show when the Lacey Peterson case was in the media to highlight the discrepancies of police and media attention. Lacey was a Caucasian woman, and this kind of reminded me of the Gabby Petito case. And I think it's important to note that when I talk about this type of media attention problem, it's not because I think those cases shouldn't have received the attention they received. It's because I believe all cases should receive that same type of attention. I was extremely disappointed in the lack of information surrounding Daphne's case, because like I said, there was not one single report of a search being conducted to look for her. Relatives of Daphne believe foul play is involved and that she is most likely deceased, but they are still holding on to the hope that they will find out what happened that day. Daphne's sister Danielle said that their father kept a bank account open in Daphne's name just in case she ever came home. Daphne's mother passed away from pancreatic cancer in 2008. She was a school administrator and a special education teacher. Danielle was quoted saying, If you ask me, it was the grief, because she grieved heavily about never being able to solve this. End quote. Daphne's grandmother Ethel died in 2012 and her father has also passed away. Danielle stated that Ethel grieved heavily over Daphne's disappearance because she was the last person to see her alive. Her aunt said that Daphne's disappearance has taught her about how important it is for family members to maintain open relationships with children once they become young adults. She stated, quote, I wish I would have been more open with her in allowing her to be a young adult. You have to deal with young adults as young adults and be open to some things you might not necessarily like, but someone needs to know what's going on, end quote. All Danielle and her brother want are answers about what happened to their sister. Danielle was quoted saying, At this point, we just want to know what happened. I don't think there's anything that can be done, but we just want to know what happened to her that day. End quote. 
Daphne's classmates at Jones High School in Washington, D.C. started a scholarship fund for their 20-year high school reunion in Daphne's name. They raised $2,000 and gave away two $1,000 scholarships. I want to end this case with a comment I found online by an anonymous person that knew Daphne. Quote, As a person who cared about Daphne, I hope there are others out there still looking for her. The boyfriend from back home that she had gotten back together with was in another state. That's always the first person they look at anyway. Daphne is a loving and trusting individual. Part of me wonders if it may have been a jilted lover that was not happy she was getting back with her boyfriend. Daphne is a beautiful, intelligent, wonderful woman. I'll never stop hoping to see my friend again one day. Signed, C.L. Daphne Jones was last seen walking into her apartment in New Orleans, Louisiana, by her grandmother on January 3, 1999, when she was 22 years old. She is an African-American woman with brown hair and brown eyes. At the time of her disappearance, she was 5'5 and weighed around 130 pounds. She was last seen wearing a yellow pullover, New Orleans jacket, blue jeans, sneakers, and a silver ring. Daphne has a tattoo of a Chinese symbol on her right shoulder and her ears are pierced. She was two months pregnant when she disappeared and the Doe Network reports that her dental records are on file. Her case is classified as endangered missing. If you have any information regarding the disappearance of Daphne Jones, please contact the New Orleans Police Department at 504 244 Four six zero zero. That's all I have for episode 18, but if any of my listeners have a loved one that disappeared and you would like their story shared in a future episode of this show, please contact me via email, podcast 7 at gmail.com. And don't forget to head to Instagram and follow me at Creme de la Crime Pod. As always, don't forget to keep your eyes and ears open out here. Until next week, this is Sam signing off. Mm-hmm.